Okay, here we are with Josh Surowitz, immigration attorney from the United States with the Metropolitan. You've been coming here for years, Josh, and we're hoping to get an update on how things are going in the world of Spanish companies trying to get visas to go to the U.S. as well as citizens. So um, let's just start right off with what's going on in the news events today. Um, what the heck's going on with the wall in the United States? The wall, yes. So... Well, that's, a, that's an interesting place to start. So, um, you know, when Donald Trump ran for president, he promised that he would build a big, beautiful wall all the way along the southern border. And um, uh, there's been efforts for him to get appropriations and funding for the wall, uh, but he has not really gotten any money for that. And um, he may be able to get some funding if he was willing to tie it towards a larger comprehensive immigration reform, but he's not willing to make any of those types of adjustments, it doesn't seem. So uh, right now, there is, is no wall. There doesn't appear to ever be a wall. I think there's a lot of complicated issues about public lands takings and a lot of citizens and other organizations own land that would have to be taken through eminent domain, which is not generally a conservative principle and uh, something that would be very challenging to do. Um, but <clears throat> what could prospectively happen is some kind of funding. Of course, there's been walls and fencing built from in, in previous administrations for, you know, for for a long time, and there's a lot of border security. And, and he may succeed in getting a similar amount of uh, funding for border security and fence and, and wall building as other presidents, and maybe he'll claim that a success. But I don't think we're going to get the big Trump Tower wall absent some amazing type of uh, uh, deal worked out the Democrats because they own the House of Representatives right now and have enough membership in the Senate to foreclose uh, any type of funding initiatives there also. Okay. Well, one of the things that has been on the news constantly is the issue of illegal immigration. But Trump, as President of the United States, has also had an impact on legal Immigration. This is where it really concerns most of the Spanish citizens. Can you speak a little bit more to what is your experience and how you see things coming around as a result of uh, new policies? Sure. So um, I think that that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, Trump represents a populist sentiment that's common, you see, with Brexit and people in France that like uh, Marine Le Pen. And there's there's a population of the United States that certainly does not appreciate the contribution of foreign nationals. And in fact, in the preamble to the uh, mission statement of the Immigration Services of the United States, for many years it stated that we're a nation of immigrants, which is a generally uncontroversial uh, and, and, and factual uh, type of perspective about the United States, and they, they removed that. And so the Trump administration's official position is that we're no longer a nation of immigrants in the United States. And I think people understand that there are legitimate concerns about legal and illegal immigration, and there are legitimate concerns about people that mean us harm, and you know the United States has been attacked. And we probably have a reasonable idea what types of countries uh, may be a greater risk for that, and some additional scrutiny is warranted. Um, but, you know, and that's getting into the whole Muslim ban, which is another very complicated issue. But as far as legal immigration, I think that's a surprise because Trump is, is if anything, is supposed to be a businessman and understand the needs of a business and competition. And what's been really surprising isn't that he's gone after asylum cases and, you know, these kids on DACA, these some 800,000 kids who Obama gave a quasi status to that he's threatening to take away. Um, 
but that he's really gone after really basic types of uh, executive transfers and investor visas and you know $180,000 engineers coming to the United States and things that are pretty clearly in the interest of our business community and of the United States. They're not taking jobs of U.S. citizens. And these cases have met with a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Getting a visa has become a much more arduous process. Under Obama, there was a rule that was longstanding that the embassies had to adjudicate at least 80% of visas within three weeks temporary visas like student visas and work visas they got rid of that uh, the embassies are really short-staffed processing times are taking a lot longer the level of scrutiny is is really increased a lot there's a lot more denials of almost every type of business immigration visa classification and so you know we're still winning cases and um, the laws haven't changed and like in any constitutional democracy the legislative body the parliament as it were uh, makes the laws and the president enforces them, but this is where you have a different referee. And if anyone's ever watched a football match or a basketball game, every play, you know, there's some contact, and a referee could really take over if they're going to on those close calls. They're going to go in one direction instead of another. And I think in those cases in the margins, we're seeing more of an attitude that's been directed by the Trump administration, specifically through sending an executive order titled the Buy American, Hire American Executive Order, which you sent to all the outposts, all the embassies, all the consulates, all the field offices and service centers that adjudicate uh, petitions. They're really under instruction to try to, you know, scrutinize and, and deny a lot more cases. And that's really made it difficult and in, in, in many cases makes it take longer for companies to plan to have global mobility and to move uh, workforce into the United States. So if for companies here in Barcelona that need to expand into the U.S., their go-to-market strategy really depends on being able to uh, build business in the U.S. This is getting more complicated for you. So in a strange way, the Trump administration is being less friendly than the Obama administration was in terms of being able to fa uh, facilitate business. Um, can you talk about what uh, more specifically people might need to do in order to successfully get their visas to go to the U.S. If for, for business and or investing? So yeah, so we, we are operating under the same types of regulations uh, primarily, and we're operating under the same laws that were enacted by the, the Congress. So we're, we're doing in, in large part what we were doing previously, but more advanced planning is required. Um, if you want to avoid additional delays, we're starting to document a lot more things than we used to document and be much more proactive. Um, and so, uh, I don't know that we've seen a fundamental change, but you know, whereas we maybe wanted to get started two or three months before someone came to the United States, now you really might want to get started four or five months, you know, to make sure um, that the employee's transfer is going to go through timely. And usually when someone's being transferred to the United States from a Spanish company or what have you, uh, there's a lot of plans. There's a spouse that he or she may want to work in the United States, may need some time to make those arrangements, leave their job, start a new position. Kids starting school is a is a timeline that people don't have a lot of flexibility about. They usually need to be somewhere by August 16th or whenever their kid's school starts. They don't want their kids missing a few weeks of school or else they may have to wait until the next semester or even the next year to make the transfer. So advanced planning has become more important given that the Trump administration has not been prioritizing funding uh, the foreign uh, 
service and that there's less officers for a greater number of applications. But the amount of scrutiny on these cases is taking a lot more of everybody's time and wasting a lot of time at all levels of the process. And so things are taking longer and the likelihood of receiving a request for additional office, particularly, I'm sorry, a, a request for additional evidence, particularly a voluminous request, uh, are, are just much higher than they had been. And so really advanced planning is, is the name of the game at this point. Okay. Um, also, you've mentioned DACA. For those of us who are not that initiated in the world of immigration, can you explain what DACA is and what it was and, and how it's uh, people who registered for it are perhaps are more under threat now than they were before? Sure. So, so this, you know, DACA is an acronym. It stands for Deferred Action of Childhood Arrivals. Childhood Arrivals means people that came to the United States, at, you know, before 2012. And at the time of initial application of this had to be under 30 years old. And when they came into the United States, they had to be under 16 and they have to have no significant criminal record. They have to uh, have graduated high school or be in school or, or have uh, gone into the military. So we're talking about really a blameless and deserving group of young people, people that had no choice. A lot of these people came when they were three, when they were five, some when they were 14, but in any event, not an age where you're calling the shots in your family, certainly. And people that, you know, are succeeding, you know, these are people that pretty universally speak English, that, you know, are educated, that are not getting in any trouble, they're vetted, they're fingerprinted. And so there's about 800,000 of these people and, you know, Trump has been trying to take their status away and he's been met with several court challenges that so far have precluded that, fortunately. But it still is on his agenda to not renew this. And the court challenges, you know, the, the effective period of those will sunset at some point. And if these are not made permanent or else extended by the Trump administration, I mean, 800,000 is a, a huge, huge amount of uh, people that are working, that are going to university, that are contributing, not getting any trouble. It would have a really profound impact. It's one of those things within a country of 300 million people, if almost a hundred if, if, if almost a million people are impacted by something, it's one out of 300 people. That's like a graduating class at a high school. It's going to be the kind of thing that everybody knows someone who's a DACA kid. You may not know it now because you just know of them as this young person um, that, you know, is just is, is doing fine. But uh, they've been enabled to come out of the shadows and participate in society to take that away. Uh, this is something also DACA that when you ask people across the political spectrum, when you explain to them what it is, Republican, Democrat, we say these are kids that came at a young age that haven't done anything wrong. And people may say, hey, you know, they're parents knew what they were doing. They broke the law. That's a fair perspective. I don't really probably tend to agree with that even about the parents, but I understand it. The kids, how are you going to say someone that came to the United States when they were six years old that doesn't know anybody in Guatemala that had no choice that's lived here their you know whole uh, life as far as they recall? Yeah, you know, to send them back would be like sending me back to Poland or sending you back to, you know, I guess... Mexico. I, I mean, it would be like sending you, but it would be worse than sending you back to Mexico because in your case, I happen to know because we're friends, you, you have family there and you speak the language and that's not the case for a lot of these kids. Um, so, I mean, we're really talking about sending them to a real alien foreign place where they in, often don't have ties and would be impoverished and would be in danger in, in many instances if, if they were not allowed to stay in the United States. And meeting these DACA kids, you know, nine, nine times out of ten, you wouldn't even know, you know, they could come home with your kids uh, from school you 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 wouldn't even know that that you know that they weren't an American They're kid meeting these kids the US absolutely the, yeah yeah and, uh, can you also clarify uh, the Biden um, 
candidacy is being attacked from the left and from the right regarding deportations. Can you give us a little bit more, uh, I guess, detail or proper perspective on how that is accurate or inaccurate and manipulated by either side? Sure. No, and that's that, that's been a story just in the last few days. You know, Biden was uh, Obama's vice president. And so, you know, for good and bad, he's going to, I think mostly Obama has a very good impression in the United States and the rest of the world. So it's mostly very positive. But Obama was attacked as being some kind of communist, soft on illegal immigration. In fact, uh, when he was attacked by the right, he deported more people than any uh, president, I think maybe than all presidents in U.S. history combined or something like that. And so, so now Biden is being attacked from the left as the Obama administration was too hard on foreign nationals. And that's not really entirely accurate because it's true that Obama deported a lot of people, but almost all of those were what are called summary deportations, which are people that are caught at the border. When you think of someone being deported, you think of some person, maybe they have a family, they're working in the United States, living there for a while, and they're being uprooted. So most of these deportations were people that were fresh coming in to the United States. And um, that's, you know, other than people that are applying for asylum, or fear persecution, which which were still admitted and allowed to do that, um, you know that's just kind of following the longstanding policies of the United States. Um, but other than that, what's really interesting is that Obama didn't really deport, in the traditional sense, regular people. And Trump's doing a lot of that. Trump is deporting anyone they can. I talked to someone last week, and her mother is eligible for her green card, and she forgot to send in one part of the tax form, and they denied the case, put her in deportation proceedings. We're going to have to fix it. It's going to waste everyone's time. It's going to waste the government's time. But they're trying to put everyone into deportation proceedings. And in 2010, Obama's Department of Justice released something called the Morton Memo, which said that if somebody was uh, you met a wide range of factors, they were not going to be a priority for deportation. So they really focused on people that had significant crimes or were security risk, gang members, and um, it was very targeted. And with 12 million people illegally in the United States, you can go after a few hundred thousand of the you know worst offenders. People that have four DUIs, people that sell drugs, people that you know beat up their wife or something, and these were the people that were getting deported. So they were deporting a lot of people, but they weren't blameless, and um, that's very distinct from what Trump is doing. And I think that that's a distinction that really is lost on on both the left that attacks Biden for Obama deporting too many people, and on the right that think that Obama was soft on immigration when in fact he set this sort of dubious record. <laughs> All right. Following up on your last, uh, I guess, response, yes. can you talk to us about what is ESTA and how is it as an example of how ESTA is being used uh, under the Trump administration? So I mean, ESTA is what's called the Visa Waiver Program, and it allows people from a lot of countries that, you know, generally the wealthier countries that have less security issues, mostly European countries, uh, Japan, Australia, um, that, that are able to come to the United States as U.S. citizens are allowed to come to Spain without a visa. They can come with no visa. That's why it's called Visa Waiver. And ESTA is the electronic online system that takes a few minutes and you, you, you fill something and you come. Uh, it's working very similarly to how it was working in previous administrations. Uh, the Trump administration now is doing a lot of th things that could catch people up that are coming on ESTA uh, that you really thought very little of coming to the United States. Now they have to give their uh, their social media credentials and which seems to be a very invasive type of a thing to come to the United States 
Um, you know, there's an increase in the amount of cell phones being checked by people coming to the United States to see if they could look at your email and see if you're trying to work, or you're trying to get married or something. Um, and so something that's important to understand is that when you come into the United States, whether or not you're a U.S. citizen, when you're at the airport in the international uh, uh, section trying to come in, you're not really in the United States and the Fourth Amendment protections against searches and seizures don't apply. You really don't have any due process. They could put your hand in your unmentionables if they want to. They can check your phone. They can check your luggage. And I think this is still very rare, relatively. Um, but you know, we are living in this period of what Trump calls extreme vetting, and they're serious, and they're starting to really get into somewhat invasive types of procedures with ordinary business and tourism travelers to an extent that it's really worrisome about the image the United States is projecting to foreign nationals and, and how welcome they are. You've, uh, you yourself, as an American citizen, travel frequently to Europe, and you've also made some comments in the past of what you feel like coming to the States as a legitimate, legal, law-abiding citizen, and yet you have this uh, frustrations entering your own country. I don't know if you can build on that. No, it's true. I, we, we had been talking before, and I, and I said, you know, when I come to Spain or I go to another country, they really don't ask me very much, and it's pretty straightforward. And I don't come for very long, and I come for business, or I come for tourism for short periods of time, so I don't suppose I'm someone that they're very interested in. But when I go to the United States, I really, you know, even though I'm a citizen, I, I do kind of get nervous returning. Um, and uh, I had an experience when I was, you know, you know, in my early 20s when I was coming back, you know, I hadn't shaved in a few days and I was coming from Europe seeing some friends and, you know, they really gave me a hard time and, you know, kept me for a few hours and searched everything. And, you know, that's even as a citizen. And so, um, I, I, I'm not sure, I, I don't have any data about if this is happening more under the Trump administration necessarily, but these types of searches of electronics devices and, um, you know, having the social inf uh, media information taken, these are new and there could be reactions to new technologies and I guess that that's a fair way of looking at it. But um, people should realize that when you do enter the United States, and you're seeking admission, you don't have the types of due process rights that you would expect to have on the street in terms of a uh, government search or seizure. All right. And then for people who would like to come into the U.S. and come in under a tourist visa but actually start working, or what are the potential consequences that uh, they should keep in mind before trying to go there on, without the proper visa? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, um, you know, interestingly, Unlawful employment is not actually a ground of inadmissibility. So if you do it, you could still get another visa, you know, theoretically. It, it doesn't it doesn't prevent issuance of a visa. But what they usually do, since it's not a basis of inadmissibility, is if they find out someone's working, they'll find them inadmissible as someone who intends to immigrate to the United States that doesn't have the proper documentation, which isn't really what it is, but it's kind of a catch-all that they use. And then you do need to get an employment visa that's possible that they could deport you and you'd have to get additional permission for that. Um, so, you know, that's really best to be avoided because unlawful 
unlawful immigration can foreclose uh, adjusting status, means getting, meaning getting your green card in the United States later. And though it's not directly a basis of inadmissibility, it can result in findings of other bases of inadmissibility and could result in somebody effectively being banished from the United States for a period of time. So often, not always, but often there is a valid visa classification with sufficient planning. Um, and if at all possible, that's really advisable because once an adverse determination such as that is reached, it, it could be years before someone could come back to the United States. Okay. Also, I'm Victor Horkasidis with the American Society and the Barcelona Metropolitan Magazine, and I'm here with Josh. Uh, Josh, can you tell the people what you do for a living here? Sure. So I'm, I'm a California attorney, and I come to Barcelona several times a year to do business and make presentations. I had a presentation this morning at the Barcelona Bar Association. Um, and I have uh, clients in many different countries, but one of my favorite places to be in do business is Spain. And so I represent uh, individuals, and I represent middle and large size companies and, and some startups also. And I basically am in the business through my California office of helping anyone that wants to come to or stay in the United United States, acquire a visa, whether it's for a business or a family or investment or, or what have you. Okay. I don't, I don't have any other questions for you now. If there's anything you'd like to share with us, your views on Trump, personal? Uh, I will say that anyone who watched this interview could probably make their best guess and they would likely be correct. Uh, how do, is it hard to be an immigration attorney under Trump and still be Republican or be a Trump fan? Well... Um, I don't know of a lot of U.S. immigration attorneys that are openly Donald Trump fans, and there may be some uh, masochists out there, I suppose. No judgments against that particular kink, but uh, it's, not, it's not one that I share myself. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Josh. We'd love to, we'd love to see you here in Barcelona. Oh, by the way, what, why do you come to Barcelona? Mostly, I just enjoy being in Barcelona, and uh, I've I've had a liaison office here. I've had a liaison, and I do business development through his office and cooperate with a local attorney here named Abel Garriga. And I've been doing that since 2011. And I also uh, come and do some business on behalf of the California Lawyers Association, and. Uh, I'm involved in their international law department, have sort of been the ambassador of the California Bar and the California Lawyers Association uh, since 2013 to the Barcelona Bar, and I, and I come here for that business also. Cool. Thanks for all this uh, advice and a free plug. If you ever need questions on immigration answered, Josh, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can find my website, surowitz.com. Oh, and I'm sure they could get it through the American Society of Barcelona through my friend Victor Horcasitas. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Take care.